Well, I mean, I don't want to be a, a fear monger, um, but the critical infrastructure definitely is uh, vulnerable to attack. Forfatter og teknologijournalist Kim Setter har skrevet boka om verdens første digitale våpen, Stöcksnet. Det här dataprogrammet beviste att ena och nulla kunde ödelägga dämningar, turbiner och strömnät. Så har kulturredaktör Espen Haugli bestämt sig för att länka fast för att beskytte galleri Oslo. Vi tog en tur inom huvudstadens försömte postmodernistiska pärle för att se på glastak och möbler i granit. När vi står upp på bron här över Svärgårdsgatan och ser eh, mot Gamlebyn så kan man kanske förstå eh, som arkitektens vision för galleri Oslo för det är er ju på en måte ett ganska elegant bygg. Jag heter Askil Materåsare och det här är er Morgonbladets podcast. Kim Setter, um, you're, you're the author of the, the new book Countdown to Zero Day, and you're, you're a journalist in, in Wired magazine. Uh, your book is about uh, the, the, the changes happening in, in how uh, warfare can be conducted, and how cyber warfare suddenly is something that can influence physical things. Put bluntly, how the <laughs> ones and zero can actually blow stuff up or at least destroy things. And I thought maybe you could start with describing one incident or the the, the, the beginning in some ways to, to this, which is the Aurora generator test, uh, which the, in yeah, in a nutshell describes uh, um, this new world. What was the Aurora generator test? So the Aurora generator test uh, was uh, something that was conducted by a U.S. national lab in March 2007. Um, and it was conducted around the same time that Stuxnet was created. Um, the Aurora generator test was the result of some researchers at I- Idaho National Lab asking or wondering the question, would it be possible for remote attackers in Russia or China or uh, uh, North Korea to uh, cause physical destruction uh, of critical infrastructure in the U.S. simply by unleashing digital code? And uh, so they did this test with a 27-ton generator and they wrote 21 lines of code that subverted something called the protective relay, um, which is a safety mechanism designed to uh, um, disconnect equipment from the grid if it gets into an unsafe condition. And they subverted this safety mechanism to turn turn that into an actual attack vector to help them uh, attack this generator. And they tricked the this protective relay into thinking that an unsafe condition was a safe condition and to keep the generator connected to the grid even when it's in an unsafe condition. And so that was just 21 lines of code. And uh, the attack lasted about three minutes, but it didn't ha- it could have been much shorter. And uh, it uh, destroyed the generator in uh, in three minutes, essentially physically yeah. destroyed it. Yeah, because um, you can see YouTube videos of this, and and it, it physically destroys it; just pours out black smoke in the end. So it's yes. it's not just destroying software; it's actually destroying physical objects. It's it's leaping from the digital realm into the physical realm to cause destruction. Yeah. Yeah. So this is sort of a, this was in two thousand and seven, and it was a sort of a, a new development, and this was a precursor to. Stuxnet that you you mentioned, uh, or, or they happened sort of of in in, they, in they parallel. Were, yeah, they yeah. were in parallel. So it wasn't like a, someone learned from uh, the Aurora generator test and designed Stuxnet around that. Uh, they're they're not connected in any way. Um, but it was uh, sort of the first demonstration publicly uh, mm. of a proof of concept where that digital code could be used to cause physical destruction. And then you know, ironically. Uh, there was already a mission and a covert operation uh, in the works to mm. do exactly that in the real world. Yeah. 
And that's your what your your book is about is this this mystery about this attack, uh, the Stuxnet attack. What was it, and 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 how was it in the end discovered? Uh, so Stuxnet was a virus slash worm that was developed by the United States and Israel to target com- um, computers in Iran that were being used to control uh, centrifuges that were enriching uranium for the Iran's illicit nuclear program. And uh, this code was designed to subvert the control systems to spin the centrifuges out of control and do some other things that cause damage. Uh, And it was successful. Uh, It was launched, the first version was launched in around late 2007, and it caused, uh, it it created some setback for the Iranian nuclear program. It it destroyed some centrifuges and it uh, helps waste some of the uranium hexafluoride gas that Iran was uh, enriching. Um, but then it was discovered prematurely. It was discovered in 2010, uh, and it was discovered because the attackers got quite reckless uh, in how they spread Stuxnet. Yes, because this you, you you call it a virus, and it spreads like uh, any regular computer virus in some ways. It, it, it goes through the internet and it infects many computers, but then just attacks some of them. But but it's really it really spreads out. Right. So so there's a distinction between a virus and a worm. A virus needs some kind of action from the computer user uh, to uh, infect a system. You need to click on an email or uh, open a file or something like that. Stuxnet was actually a worm. So you didn't actually need the user to do anything. Once you um, got it onto a system, it would spread to other systems without the user's mm. help, uh, without an, any aid whatsoever. I mean, that made it even more dangerous. That's actually got what got caught, Stuxnet caught because it started to spread um, outside of Iran. Uh, and um, it, was, um, it was discovered because it, sar- it caused some machines to crash. And that uh, caused some, uh, an antivirus company in Belarus was called in to examine some machines in Iran. And they discovered the files on that system. Yeah. So, so, so this is then uh, how how this came to be be known. And if it wasn't for this, we might well not have known that this sort of warfare was actually going on. But, but how did we get there? What, what, what was the <laughs> the role that led us to to Stuxnets? You know, through through the nineties, for instance. How, how did cyber warfare develop? Uh, well, the, in the U.S., uh, they started looking at it, and I think in, it developed around the same time in China. Um, this realization that uh, things were becoming more and more interconnected. And if things were becoming more and more interconnected, then that created the ability to remotely attack them. And uh, critical infrastructure systems uh, in particular started getting connected to the Internet in the late 90s. So power grids. Power grids and chemical plants and water treatment facilities and all of those things. And uh, the NSA started looking at this. They realized the, um, the, the possible advantages of this. Uh, in the late 90s, and um, started to, to develop the new uh, computer ne- um, computer network attack uh, capabilities. Um, so that was around like 1997, 1998. Mm. And uh, in Iran, they broke ground on this nuclear facility in 2000. So it was really the timing was all really gelling yeah. for this new attack capability to uh, be birthed, let's say, um, right around the time that, um, you know, the need for it mm. was arising. Because yeah. it was uh, some way you could actually uh, d- d- try halting this without using physical violence. But was it really a success when you, you look back on it now? Because it has so many different uh, effects that were sort of unforeseen. And also there's a discussion that w- about whether or not it actually 
really amounted to anything what what the Stuxnet did yeah so there are different assessments of it um uh, i think the the former head of the israeli mossad uh, when he left office, uh, thought that he asserted that it set back uh, the Iranian nuclear program by about three years. Um, others have assessed it maybe 18 months setback. But Iran really recovered fairly quickly uh, in terms of the amount of gas that they were enriching. Uh, it had set back um, uh, that uh, during the time of the attack, particularly in 2000, early 2010, late 2009. Mm. Uh, they weren't pr- producing as much t- enriched uranium gas as they were that th- as they should have because of Stuxnet. Um, but once Stuxnet was discovered, Iran actually started increasing the amount mm. of gas it was pouring into the centrifuges. And then, you know, the the balance of that was that they did produce the amount that was expected. Um, but uh, you know, there were, there were a lot of covert operations going on, not just Stuxnet and. Even if the Iranians believed that they wiped the systems of Stuxnet, um, the attackers weren't going to give up. Mm. Um, so there was always the possibility that there would be additional sabotage. Yeah, uh, yeah, whether yeah. or not it, a- it happened, um, you know, that was something that the Iranians forevermore were going to have to be contending yeah. with. Because if 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 it would have worked, we wouldn't really be talking about it now. So there might be operations, uh, sort of that move beyond Stuxnet that, that might be, be happening now? Because what do you think sort of is the, the legacy or the, the effect of, of, uh, I think of Stuxnet? It, so I think it was uh, it was proof of concept in the way the Aurora generator test mm. uh, was, but it was proof of concept for the government. You know, this was a very closely held uh, covert operation. Um, and once it was exposed, you know, a lot of other... Uh, it, it became clear that this was a viable method. Let's say it, it proved that this was um, something that could be done. It could be con- done in a controlled way. Mm. Um, I said that Stuxnet spread uncontrollably, but it only unleashed its uh, um, sabotage payload on a very specific system. It was looking for a very specific configuration, and if it didn't find mm. that, it wasn't going to damage other systems. Yeah, so it didn't detonate, so to speak, if right. it didn't find what it wanted, but it has its fingerprints all over the place, all sure. over the internet now. Sure, it would spread. But mm. so, so you see lawyers' fingerprints all over this code, mm. uh, the way that it was precise. Uh, you can see that uh, there were demands made when it was being developed that it couldn't cause collateral damage. Um, so, uh, and, and so it, it worked in mm. many ways. I mean, they made mistakes and they, they'll probably learn from those mistakes, but, um, it, it definitely showed the government that this and other governments, um, that this is a viable response to political, um, uh, difficulties. So, so how scared should we be though for, for the <laughs> sort of a, the Pandora's box that this has, has opened? How, how scared should we be for our, our national infrastructure and and things like that. How apocalyptic should we should we be, should we be about this? Well, I mean, I don't want to be a, a fear monger, um, but the c- critical infrastructure definitely is uh, vulnerable to attack. I mean, we saw recently the Ukrainian uh, power grid outage, mm. um, which was on a it was very small scale and uh, fully recoverable within a very short amount of time. Three to six hours, all the electricity was restored. Um, but if that was uh, done in um, a way that caused physical destruction of transformers and things like that, um, if you cause physical destruction in addition, in w- through your cyber attack, um, then you're going to have a much more prolonged uh, effect. Mm. And if you're going after critical infrastructure, the electric grid is the critical infrastructure you want to go after because mm. it controls every other uh, sector of critical infrastructure. Uh, and who should we fear, though? Because... Uh, the U.S. has, has 
proven that they are willing to do these things to to, to at least certain targets. Uh, could somebody be willing to start a war this way or, or are there mechanism in, in how our society now works that doesn't make that likely? Well, I think it's, it varies from country to country. Uh, the U.S., at least in it, its electric grid, is uh, composed of uh, a lot of various different parts, but they mm. are interconnected. Um, so you can cause outages uh, and have it cascade. Um, and I think that uh, in terms of the actors that might cause something like this, um, it's we're there's a problem of capability mm-hmm. uh the capability Stuxnet was extremely sophisticated and uh, the capability to pull that off is held by very few countries i would say the us israel uh russia china uh possibly uk and france um and other countries are looking into developing capabilities but uh, that really was extremely sophisticated and required a lot of resources mm-hmm. um for testing and all of that um but That was a very um, uh, careful operation that was designed for incremental damage. Yeah, you didn't even want the, the, the people who were attacked to to notice what was happening to them. Right. Yeah. You wanted them to be guessing what is the, what's the problem with the centrifuges. Mm. Is this the centrifuges themselves? Is it the motor in the centrifuges mm. or what? But if you wanted to just do damage. Right. If you if you yeah. didn't care that your attack was going to be noticeable or that it was going to be very catastrophic, mm. you wouldn't need to be so careful and it wouldn't be, need to be so sophisticated. Mm. One thing that you, you you mentioned which sort of connects this to the different discussion about cyber <laughs> cyber politics is that you know Stuxnet spread and in some ways that might uh, to to many computers and one possibility is that this makes uh, uh, these uh, infected computers vulnerable uh, it, it can give back doors so called back doors to to american uh, the the american government uh, and it's interesting how how in some ways the a lot of the the techniques that we we are used to talking about when it comes to surveillance suddenly also come into play when we we talk about cyber attack um so so i, I was just wondering if if you could if i could hear your thoughts about the development post the uh, the snowden revelations and the development in in surveillance um because w- what seems to have happened after the snowden revelations is are some changes in how the big companies the it companies relate to how to protect uh um information that's sent uh, across the internet uh, and they are now supplying fairly easily accessible sometimes just automatic strong encryption and this seems to be 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 changing how how we communicate and how surveillance work w- what do you think will be the effect of this post snowden shift that we're seeing well i mean we're already seeing the effect in terms of uh, the frustration of law enforcement mm. you obtain data um and y- you know more and more companies like whatsapp uh, encrypting data um i think that it is going to become more difficult for law enforcement they're going to have to become more um targeted mm. in their uh, surveillance. Uh you know, they still have the ability to hack into systems. So in the case of a known target, um they have the ability to conduct surveillance even if you're using encryption. If you can get onto the system mm. and install a keystroke logger, um so tro- you can read, horse, read the you're, you're read the computer from the inside instead of intercepting a message yes, between inst- two Exactly, instead yeah. of intercepting encrypted communication that you can't read, if you're on the system you can actually grab those keystrokes mm. as they're being typed before that message gets encrypted. Mm. So there's still ways around that encryption. 
Um, and you just have to become um, much more targeted in your surveillance and more precise. Mm-hmm. And law enforcement doesn't want that, right? No. They want the ability to do sort of mass surveillance and grab data from the air. It's uh, more convenient that way. Because uh, what's interesting, what's happened in Norway just in the last couple of months is that all the, the political parties almost uh, came out and said, we will not try to stop the access to hard encryption. Like uh, the US government had tried that and the British government has, has tried that earlier. But they all said that we we won't we won't try that, and I thought that was was interesting. That all across the board uh, they seem to to want that, but the, or not to want to to prevent that. But then now we we have uh, new suggestions for for rules of surveillance that sort of broaden how you can surveil in the in the way you you talked about how you can actually read a computer from the inside and and the old idea of of actually listening into a cable between two devices seems seems obsolete so how do you think the the um, uh, the way surveillance works or operates will change uh, did you think this is sort of a new direction where you the the old eavesdropping is sort of a thing of the past and you 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 come in differently or or attack from from the inside um i mean it, it definitely if the encryption is done well um mm. that it does create a problem for them uh and it it's going to have to become much more focused the surveillance um i think that uh, we've seen though like in the um the post investigations of the the paris attacks and the belgian attacks um where the reports come out saying that the planning was done in the clear it was they weren't using encryption mm. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, attackers do make mistakes and they don't use, uh, there was also, uh, I remember um, when the, after the Paris attacks, they were talking about uh, the group of uh, planners had been under surveillance in Belgium. Mm. And the police had actually installed listening devices in the cars. Um, and so uh, there are other methods of getting at the data that you want, right? Mm. You can install listening devices inside apartments or yeah. Um, so I think that the in- encryption it creates a barrier, mm. um, but it's not an impenetrable barrier. There yeah. are other ways around it that you can still conduct surveillance. Yeah, and it seems now, at least as in Norway, that the government tries to widen their reach in in that area because they they seem to have at least slightly lost uh, lost the, the ability to to tap into right. Tap into and funds. there's and there's always the the good old fashioned old way of doing covert operations, and that's you plant a mole into you mm. know the cells that you want to be. Investigating, yeah. you know. So, so the physical world still has a, a role to play, <laughs> even though the digital has uh, sort of infringed on the real, uh, real world. Yeah, I think that the digital, uh, sorry, the physical world, it, the old school kind of gumshoe uh, surveillance uh, still uh, holds a lot of water. It's still quite effective. Perfect. Thank you so much, You're Kim Setter. Thank you for for speaking with me. You're welcome. My yeah. pleasure. Do you have a Scottish accent? Uh, no, uh, not intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> that must be. I, I haven't seen many uh, many uh, Scottish TV shows. I usually say that uh, my English came from Fresh Prince and Bel Air, but it's a horrible Bel Air accent, at least. So. I'm not even sure what a Bel Air accent is. No, uh, Postmodernistisk arkitektur har alltid haft et slags sånn indre ønske om å bli ruiner, kan man få, få inntrykk av, med sine greske søyler og fragmenterte fasader og blanding av stilarter fra alle historiens epoka. Og nu ser det ut som om den kan få akkurat det den ønsker, dessverre. For postmoderne arkitektur er vrien å, å bevare. 
lite för de materialen som blev brukt ikke hälsa så gott men också för den är er stemodlig behandlad. Folk syns den är er heller ryggradslös och ljuslig, virker det som. Ett av de tydligaste postmoderna byggen är er Galleri Oslo, en indörs 400 meter lång handgata med glastak rätt vid Oslo S. Då det stod färdig på på tampen av 80-talet så skrev Aftenposten Paris har sitt Galleri Lafayette, Milano sitt Galleria Vittorio Emanuel om ett drygt år får vi Galleri Oslo. I 2008 så blev bygget i samma vis kåret till Oslos styggeste. Och nu står det i fare för att rives och byantikvaren ser hur ikke vill motsätta det. Kulturredaktör i Mombladet Espen Haugli däremot vill starta en kamp för att rädda bygget. Så han och jag vi bestämde oss för att flanera igenom galleriet för att förstå varför. Då står jag som med Espen Haugli, er konstituerad kulturredaktör i i, I Mombladet på brua över fra Oslo S och till eh, galleri Oslo. Ja. Nå, nå har vi da postkjul å bygge, eh, Oslo S, Oslo City, Plaza og Galleri Oslo. Eh, ingen av dem er vel sånn, høyt elsket, men eh, jeg tenker at eh, når vi står opp på broen her over Sverigårdsgatet og ser eh, mot Gamlebyen, så kan man kanskje forstå eh, som arkitektens vision for Galleri Oslo, for det er jo på en måte et ganske elegant bygg når man ser det fra over gateplanen. Ja, for det, det er et langt bygg, det er over, over 400 meter langt, som, som på noen måte er koblet sentrum mot, mot Grønland. Det er jo originalt nok en innendørs gate mellom da, sentrum og, og inngangen til Gamlebyen i Oslo. Og, og grunnen til at vi er, det er jo at du øh, har stilt dig øh, fremst I, I, I lenkegjengen, som du sier, øh, for att bevare det her bygget som en, egentlig en postmoderne perle, eller i hvert fall et, et, et av de tydeligste eksemplene på postmoderne arkitektur, som er ganske truet i Oslo. Hva er det som gjør at du, du velger å, 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 å ta det skrittet og, og stille dig helt fremst her? Det, det, postmodernistisk arkitektur i Norge är er, eh, inte så gott representerat av er få bygg. Eh, og det är er en eh, kanske en trend som aldrig helt fick fotfäste. Och det är er också nettop därför att vi jeg tror det är er viktigt att tänka nå när när dessa byggnader är er sån 30-40 år gamla så är er de akkurat i, I den värste farzonen för det de är er ikke gamle nok til at folk har noe nostalgisk eller historisk forhold til dem, men de er jo heller ikke nye og spennende. En grund til at postmodern som kanskje ikke er så gjev å bevare, er noe vi ser rett bort her, som er den store reklamesøylen, ja. som er et litt definerende formgrep i norsk postmodernistisk arkitektur, og som jo i hvert fall sånn står nå, ikke er så lett å elske, men tenk på, tenk på fasademaling med reklame fra 30 og 20-tallet, da man får malt opp igjen. Alle elsker jo det. Ja, nå, det er vente, men ting må jo gå konkurs først, da, selvfølgelig. Ja, så klart, så du kan ha de gamle, klassiske Blue Master-reklamen. Men nu er det jo også en stor diskussion I, I Tokyo nu, hvor, hvor fordi man begynner å gå bort fra neonlyset over til ledlys, så begynner man jo å få et ekstremt nostalgisk forhold til, til dem reklamefasadene. Men jeg vet ikke om satsreklamen er helt det der ennå. Nei, og ikke ramirent heller, tror jeg. <laughs> men du håper egentlig at den postmonerne byggene også da, kan, kan komme in I, I, I varmen igen på, på den måten? Jeg blev litt inspirert av en uh, britisk organisation som heter uh, The 20th Century Society, som... Uh, som jobbar för att värna 
kulturarven från det 20 århundre och som nå liksom försöker få laget en kanon över postmoderna bygg i England som bör värnas och hvis vi skulle lage en tillsvarande kanon i Norge så tror jag Galleri Oslo burde vara i hvert fall en het kandidat till den listan. Det som är er så vanskligt med postmoderna arkitektur att den är er så eklektisk, den liksom stjärd elementa och liksom fasader och pynt och allt möjligt från så många olika ställen. Det är er lite svårt att bli klok på akkurat kan det. Kanske vi skulle ta oss en tur in på galleriet och se efter om vi blir klokare på på postmodernismens essens som den har då. Låt oss det. En av svagheterna med den byggningen är er att det är er ganska svårt att finna ingången rätt slett. Nu har vi tre etager upp i praxis. Ja, man måste man måste göra en insats för att komma in. Men när man först kommer in så så är er det ju någon lyspunkter som vi kan se. Ja. Du kan egentligen som som står framför oss akkurat nu och som som trä framför för ditt öga. Nu nu ser vi ju faktiskt den nya tid. Espresso House har flyttat in. Och det är er ju kanske ett tecken på att det är er hopp för den byggningen också men det vi ser i stort är er ju en indörs gata med glastak och glasvägger i begge ender, som går då från Oslo Plaza i praxis och bort till Grönland eller längs Grönland kan man säga si, och mot Gamlebyn Och bygge här, det blev påbynt i 1988, eller det? Påbynt i 86 väl, öppnat i mars 89. Det som var ulempen var ju att mellan 86 och 89 så hade ju den stora och långa norska bankkrisen verkligen börjat att ta grepp eller fäste sig. Och i Per december 1990 så var väl detta skulle vara en handelsgata ett shoppingcenter i gateform och per till jul 1990 så var det väl en eller två butiker igen och en kafé omtrent utan att jag ska som garantera för att det är er nöjaktigt men det, er, det var mycket tomt så så tomheten är er ju på något mode då egentligen värdevärde i sig själv för det minner om en en nedgångstid i i, I norsk ekonomi värdevärde på ett metanivå kanske men det jag tror den på en mode medförde eller det kan man spekulera på är er att slitagen är er påfallande liten till att vara ett likt genomgångs bygning efter då 6 27 år. Ja, för fördi den har varit lite lite glömt så har den kanske då egentligen tår tiastan bättre än inte blivit blivit slitt ner till till rota. ja, man ser det i alla fall tydligtvis man jämförligen med bussterminalen som är er då i första etagen som är er det de flesta har besökt i den byggningen som uppenbart slites och pusses upp jämnligt så är er ju denna övre delen är er påfallande välåt vill jag säga. Si fanga i fanga i rav. Ska vi försöka och se om vi finner några av de tydligaste postmoderna elementen här. Det det är er ju den den sammanlignas ju egentligen med med klassisk gammal sån galleria runt omkring i Roma och Milano och har ju såna piazza bland annat. Vad är er det som är er så så speciellt med dem tänker du? Uh, nej, det det är er, uh, tanken var ju att uh, ja, man skulle få Europa och världen då in i Oslo. Uh, det är er en liksom rörande naiv och optimistisk tanke tänker jag nog som eh flybiljetten till Milano är er så otroligt billig att uh, att det att gå i ett uh, köpcenter med här som vi har er på nu en liten uh, 9 kvadratmeters uh, piazza 
med dette er vel der er den franske piazzan med tricolor i gulvet og på disse lenestolene i granit som ikke helt ergonomisk men på sin måte ganske flott ikke helt og her ser vi så vidt det er signaturen i gulvet på en liten messingplakett til Thomas Volnick som designet disse piazzaene og møblene på dem som var et hett navn i sin tid med intervjuer blant annet for Barokk og Kåre Hansen som var kule hangouts for den glade jappetiden da Så her i Frankrike, det skal også være en amerikansk plass her, er det ikke? Ja, vi kan gå bort mot Manhattan. Ja, tenk det, midt i Oslo. Det er sånn simulakrum av verden egentlig, hele det. Ja, jeg tror til og med hvis vi går helt bort at man kan komme til å parkere i Zagreb, sett for Zagreb. Dette er jo faktisk et ganske kult, ganske flott kunstverk. Vi tar rulletrapp nå forbi. Finn Kristensens storby, som var en gave til åpningen. En slags metropol sett ovenfra i dyp relief. Kanskje fortjener flere besøkende. Og den er jo litt flott, for den har en skyline sett ovenfra, hvor det også slanger seg et langt bygg langs bakken. Det er kanskje en slags ode til galleriet selv. Det er mulig det er en hilsen, det vet jeg ikke. Det er tre institusjoner, eller sett med institusjoner, som har funnet seg til dette her. Det er jo da Akershus fylkeskommune, som har også sin fylkestingssal rett bak oss. Så er det den unik postmoderne institusjonen Vesterdals reklameskole, deres teknologiavdeling. Og en stor gruppe organisasjoner for folk med ulike lidelser. Det er bra at de har et sted å være, men det var vel ikke helt det man så for seg da det åpnet med sånne slags metaforiske sambatakter i 89. Nei, for det er ikke så ferdig mye butikker. Jeg var journalist i Oslo-magasinet for mange herrens år siden. Da var det snakk om at man bare skulle gjøre hele galleriet i Oslo om til den nye plata, fordi her kan du ha alle tilbudene kan være tilgjengelige, det er ok temperatur her om vinteren. Så det har vært mange forslag om å vri det bort fra det det originalt var laget som, men tror du det har muligheten til å komme tilbake og bli det det en gang var planlagt til å faktisk være? Det vet jeg ikke om jeg tør å si, men... Jeg tenker at hvis man fikk vist frem inngangene litt bedre, så tror jeg også flere ville gått igjennom, og det hadde jo hjulpet på fotfallet her. Nå står vi jo midt i New York, det gulvet er farget som en New York gul taxi. Mer rutebånd også. Mer rutebånd, ja. Og her har vi den granittstolen igjen, som har en passende nok da, for å bygge en TV-skjerm med, hvor det ser ut som det er børskurser som stuper opp og skyter ned og skyter opp. Det er to lønstoler her som representerer USA med hver sin TV-skjerm. Det ene da med børskurser, og den andre med Mikke Mus, som sier New York i en snakkeboble, i tilfelle du var i tvil. Og så er det også en benk her med påskrifter av typiske New Yorkske ting som Waldorf Astoria, The Village og også Donald T. 
som jo kanskje gjør at dette er mer aktuelt enn noensinne på en måte, særlig hvis det går som man kanskje kan frykte. Ja, du får, får, får tips i den amerikanske ambassaden om det, og så heter om vi, vi får verna i hvert fall den her paviljongen. Men byantikvaren vil ikke sette sig på bakbena hvis det er et forslag om å, å rive. Det ville, jeg tenker at det ville være litt synd om man bare kastet vekk dette, dette. Ja, bulldozerene må i hvert fall da gjennom der først. Espen Hubli fra Tusen Takk for, for braten. Skal vi se etter om vi, vi finner oss en kaffe her, hvis vi finner et ikke tomt butikklokal? Vi prøver. I avisa den her uka så kan du lese et intervju med byantikvaren som forklarer hvorfor hun ikke vil kjempe for galleri i Oslo. På Månbladets hjemmeside så kan du også lese Håkon Gundersen sin reportasje fra galleriet fra 2011. Det var alt for i dag. Musikken du hører i bakgrunnen er laget av Beglomegg og Oddne Meisfjord. Jeg heter Askel Matre Åsarø. Vi høres. Kunne du tenke dig å annonsere her på Morgenbladets podcast? Kanskje du har en bok, et arrangement eller et produkt du har lyst til å nå ut til Morgenbladets lyttere med? Da kan du ta kontakt med Camilla på telefon 4702. 6006 eller sende en e-post til ck@morgenbladet.no